In my beginning is my ending, and in my ending is my beginning. So writes uh, T.S. Eliot in his epic poem, The Four Quartets. Uh, and if you have been around me uh, for any time whatsoever, you know I love this quote. I come back to this quote because I find it utterly profound. There is something vitally important about beginnings and endings. We cannot live our lives properly without knowing our true beginnings and our true endings. It simply cannot be done. Uh, and we know that in our gut, that how we begin something shapes how we will end it. But there's also this promise of grace that when we are grasped by our ending, true ending, we have a new beginning. There's conversion. There's the hope that comes through the gospel being preached. So beginnings and endings are absolutely vital and they are central to the story of the gospel, which means that every year on the first Sunday, the beginning of the new year, we come and are asked to reflect on our end and come to reflect on Jesus speaking about the end with his first disciples. Every year at this time of year, this is what we get. And we had a portion of him doing this in Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 21. Uh, we'll get next year in Matthew's and the year next in, in Mark. But today, this year, it's Luke's year. And so I ask you to open up your Bibles to Luke 2.21. You can find the Bible in the seat in front of you. Um, here's the preacher's dilemma. You get a small smattering of a long teaching. Uh, and you really cannot understand this small little piece without looking at it in its context. So I'm driven every year to come back and look at the entirety, and we haven't got time to do that. So we're going to just sort of piece this thing together really quickly and walk through it, and then ask what it has to do with our lives. Remember the context. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are in the temple mere days before his own death. We jump ahead to Holy Week and the events of Holy Week, but that's where they are. They are in the temple, uh, and Jesus is preparing for his arrest and trial and execution. And in the temple, one of his disciples marvels at the temple, and it was one of the marvels of the ancient world. Uh, some, he says, we're speaking, verse 5 uh, of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. And Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Predicts the utter destruction of the temple which means the utter destruction of Jerusalem, which means the utter defeat of the people of God. Devastation. You go to Jerusalem today, and you will see that this has indeed come true. Not one stone is left on the foundation of the Temple Mount. 
all was turned down 30 to 40 years after he spoke it. This, of course, prompts a panicked question. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Notice they didn't ask why. They asked when. We ask why. We want to know what the heck is going on. They did not ask why. They seemed to know intuitively that if God was to judge the temple, uh, it was because he was judging Israel. He would judge his people as he had done before by ripping down the place where he would meet with them. And if he was going to judge the people, it had to be because they were going to be momentarily rejecting Jesus. See, they knew that they were in the midst of a massively important time in the life of Israel. They knew that their master, Jesus, had entered the city triumphantly, declaring himself publicly to be the Messiah, the king, coming to reclaim and establish his kingdom, coming to renew his temple. They knew that Jesus had finally declared himself to be the one through whom God himself would fulfill his promises for his people. And he was coming and saying, I am the one, deal with it. And they knew that Jerusalem and the leaders of Jerusalem had to make a choice at that point in time. Will they bow to him or will they execute him? Will they accept him as their king and the way he has come to establish his kingdom? Or will they reject him and carry on with the way they want to establish the kingdom? Either or. You couldn't have it both ways. And Jesus was saying, guess what, guys? The temple will be destroyed, and therefore they will reject me. And that rejection of the temple, the destruction of the temple, actually would be a vindication of Jesus. The disciples seemed to know that. So they asked for when and not for why. Interesting enough, when I think about this scene in the temple, uh, Jesus is telling those first disciples of his that they will live out the rest of their lives between those two great events between the cross, the passion of the Messiah, and the destruction of their city. That first generation lived between those two great events. The entire New Testament, primarily, was the, re the story told about that generation living between those two great events the passion of the Christ, the destruction of the temple. And Jesus is saying, your life will be lived between those times. And it's not going to be an easy life. In fact, he tells those disciples sitting in front of him, it will consist of at least two great things. Uh, verse 12, he says, before all of these events, these 
epic cosmic events that I'm talking about. Before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And of course, we read through the Acts of the Apostles, and that's what happens. And you actually understand why it had to happen. If they rejected their master and killed him, and you believe that he was still around, guess what's going to happen to you? Inevitably, they would have been persecuted by the authorities who had executed their Lord. And they got that. They understood that. It just came with the territory. But what made it worse, he says in verse 16, was that sense of inner betrayal with their families. Says, but you will be delivered up <clears throat> even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends. Some of you they will put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And again, you can understand what happens when a, a society, a, a culture is heading to rebellion, to the brink of rebellion. They cannot stand dissent. And as Jerusalem grew closer and closer to that fateful step of going to war with Rome, the pressure on the church became intense. So much so that even family members found themselves betraying each other. Persecution betrayal, even martyrdom. That, says Jesus, is the context of your life. Living between the times. But he doesn't really even get disturbed by that. And he doesn't want them to be disturbed by that. In this text, he gives four exhortations saying, here's what you need to do in order to live in this time. Four exhortations that just sort of jumped off the page. First one in verse 8. says, see to it that you are not led astray. See to it that you are not led astray. There will be many coming saying, I am he. <laughs> and there were. Uh, they rejected Jesus as Messiah. It didn't mean they rejected Messiahship. They were looking for a Messiah to do what they wanted to do. And there were multiple options as, they, as the country came closer and closer to rebellion. He says to his own people, see that you are not led astray. And second, verse 9, do not be terrified. There's earthquakes and cosmic happenings. There's wars and rumors of wars. There's persecution and betrayal. But don't be terrified. Whoa. Don't. Because he's convinced that there's a greater power at work within them. Far greater power at work with them. Do not be terrified. Wow. And then later on in verse 34, he says, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day of his return come upon you suddenly like a trap. And then lastly, verse 36, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Four big exhortations. Uh, two about external things and two about internal things, right? 
Do not be led astray. Do not go along to get along. And do not be terrified by these things. Do not be frightened of their power because you know of a greater power. And then internally, do not be weighed down by life. Don't get discouraged with the pain of living between the times so that you just want to get drunk. You just want to find a drug to take the pain away. And don't fall asleep to the things of God. When everything around you is saying fall asleep because it's easier to do, easier to live in the times rather than waking up to these realities. Those are the exhortations. Stay awake. Don't be weighed down. Do not be led astray. Do not be terrified. And then right in the middle of his teaching, Jesus finally answers the question of when, in verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. When everybody else in Judea is fleeing to the city, his people are to flee to the mountains. Get out of Dodge, because the day is happening. The day of my vindication has come. That's the, uh, the sweep of Luke 21. Uh, it's a uh, powerful passage, and we have just sort of touched the surface of it. But again, the question is, what do we do to make sense of this? How do you and I sort of grab a hold of this so that we can actually live our lives in the way Jesus wants us to live our lives? Um, and the thing that I would like to say is simply this. Remember who we are talking about. This first generation this apostolic age, again, is the one being addressed by our Lord. This is the one that lived between the times, between the time of his passion and the time of this destruction, which is a sign of the end, the great end of all things. And again, the New Testament itself is written about this generation living between these times. This is the age that we found ourselves upon. Every other generation takes its cue from this generation living this life between these times. That's what it means to be founded upon the prophets and the apostles. Their life is to shape our life. Their context is to give understanding to our context. Because the reality is, you and I and every other human being who has ever lived also live between the times. We live between our beginning and our end. We live between uh, the cross of Christ, the passion of Christ, and the return of Christ, the great and glorious return. We live between the defeat of evil, the breaking of its power on the cross, and its utter eradication when he returns again. But in the meantime, evil remains. In the meantime, evil remains implacably opposed to those who trust in Jesus.
That's the context of their life. That's the context of our lives. Every generation lives between the times, between this beginning and our glorious end. And so these exhortations given to that first generation are also given to us. Evil will want to lead us astray. Jesus says, you must not be led astray. It is so easy to be led astray. Right? Evil will try to overwhelm you, to terrify you, to make you doubt that its power has been broken. And you know there are times when evil smacks you in the face and you go, whoa, did it really happen? Is it really true? Evil will try to weigh you down with dissipation and with the cares of this world because it is painful to live in that tension when you are being persecuted for your faith. And you just want to dull the pain, let it go away. (laughs) And evil will want to make you fall asleep to the things of God because it is so much easier to go along and get along than to be distinct and ever increasingly distinct in the way you live as a society hurtles to the brink. These exhortations are for us and for every generation that lives between the times. So how do we live it? How do we take these exhortations and fulfill them? Do we just sort of take a deep breath, clench our teeth, and charge out into that dark night? All right? Well, good luck with that. Good luck with that. We don't get very far when we just sort of try to suck it up and get her done. At least I don't. So how do we take these exhortations and make them effectively our own? That's a good question for the first Sunday back. And I found myself turning not to the scriptures, but to the collect of the day. Because the collect of the day, I think, gives us the clue as to how to live the exhortations. Let me just uh, read again a portion of it. It does say what it is that we must do, right? He says, we must cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Um, That's the colic's way of expressing the exhortations that Jesus has given to us. Uh, We need to, in essence, cast away those deeds of darkness cast away everything that makes us complicit with the evil in our day and our age, and we must put on the armor of light. We must be, pay attention to the things of God in these perilous times. And those are things that we must do. Don't get us wrong here. 
You must do these things if they are to be done in your life. You have to act on them. But that is not the request of the prayer. Here's how the prayer starts. It says, Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the things of darkness. Give us grace to put on the armor of light. The cry of the people of God, given these imperatives of God, is for the grace of God. The grace that alone enables us to do what we're commanded to do. And that's the exhortation, and that's the invitation of this first Sunday of Advent. We seek the grace of God. And again, the reality is this. The things that you and I must do for God, and again, just remember that we must act on these things. We have to do these things. But the things we must do for God cannot be done apart from God. They must be done with God, in partnership with him. And that's where grace comes in. So we receive the imperatives and we cry out for grace in the partnership, the covenanted partnership. And that's what we need to do when we begin happen. We need to commit ourselves daily to cry out for grace for that day. To get not before we put our feet on the ground outside our beds, we need to cry out for the grace of God to live the life of God given to us that day. We cry out for grace on a daily basis. We cry out even as we open up the scriptures because we are looking for the instructions of God for that day. What are you asking of me? If you have not committed to seeking the face of the Lord and to seeking the voice of the Lord uh, in your morning time, before you begin your day, this is a great season of the year to do that, to begin those habits in life. You've got to do that or you will not be able to live the life you're called to live. Commit yourself daily to cry out for grace and to listen for the voice of God speak to you through the scriptures of God, through the New Testament, especially this generation that learned to live between the times. Commit daily and then commit weekly to come on the first day of each week to this table because this is the place where our beginnings and our ends are joined. This is the place where we come to meet with the one who is our Alpha and our Omega. We come to feast with him and he with us. He comes to feed us by his grace and with his grace for us to live the life we're called to live. You see, this is the place that connects the beginning and the end. It is founded upon the passion of Christ and it anticipates the feast of the kingdom. And we meet with the one who has come in this place, receiving in tangible form the grace of God. 
to live the life of God. We cry out for grace and we commit ourselves to open us to the grace of God, the means of grace for the people of God. Commit yourself daily to seek his face. Commit yourself weekly to come to this table and make it the center of your life. And you will be enabled to do what you were created to do. You will find yourself living your life in partnership with the one who is your life. Who gives his life for you. That's what heaven's all about. In this beginning is our ending. And we who live between the times are enabled to live faithfully to his glory. Will you commit to seek the grace of God in this Advent season? Let us pray.